All right. Well, welcome back uh, to Downtown Community Church. My name is Ben, the pastor here. I want to say uh, thank you to you guys who have brought uh, my wife and I. For those of you who don't know, maybe you're new here. Um, my wife and I had a baby boy about 16 days ago now, um, and so sleep is at a minimum at the Kemper household, uh, but that's all right. I uh, put eye moisturizer on so you wouldn't see the bags, um, courtesy of my wife's advice. Anyways, um, we are uh, uh, happy and sleepless and at the same time overjoyed, and we want to say thank you to those of you uh, who have been uh, generous in your thoughts towards us and your prayers towards us. Uh, some of you guys have brought us meals, and so we're just thankful for all those things that you guys have done and surrounded by the church uh, family. We've had uh, wonderful speakers the last two weeks in a row. Grant, um, who did a fantastic job. In fact, I uh, was telling, I think I told him, either that I, I told him or somebody else, one of the two, um, <laughs> sleep deprivation. You have no memory. Like, I have the memory of a goldfish anyways, but um, add in no sleep, and it just gets real silly. Um, anyways, I thought, man, I thought that was one of the best sermons I've ever heard Grant give. In fact, I Every time Grant speaks, people come back to like, are you sure you need to speak next time? I'm like, I don't know, maybe not. Um, And then we had a a, a gentleman come speak last week, and he just did a fantastic job talking about faith. A guy named Dave Harvey, who is uh, is really influential in a bunch of different circles. And so thankful for them who did that. Uh, We are finishing up a series today uh, called Destinations. And then next week, um, we're going to start a brand new series, and and we're very uh, excited about it. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about it um, because there's a little bit of anticipation around it. Um, And the series is basically going through um, the seven letters or the first few chapters of the book of Revelation, at which point everybody goes, ooh, you know, because that's the queer, that's the weird book that nobody knows about. That's the one that we're like, man, that, that, that there's all this imagery that I don't know how to understand and interpret, and it, it's just can be difficult. It can be tough. So we're going to kind of take a first step towards the Book of Revelation and go through the first couple chapters um, where some letters happen. So if you if you've ever been interested in the Book of Revelation, or if you've ever been extraordinarily disinterested in the Book of Revelation because you're sitting there reading it and you picked up at about chapter 15, you just kind of decided to drop in one day because you had one of those quiet times where you. Like, I'm just going to open the Bible and see where God takes me. God does not lead you to the middle of Revelation, all right? Let me just tell you on your own. Unless you are just like a a, a renowned scholar, God's not going to do that, okay? So let me just play Operation Holy Spirit for a second. But if you've ever just kind of been disinterested by it because there's so many things, there's so much imagery, how in the world could anybody understand it? I would highly, highly suggest that you come back next week and for the next several weeks because in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus speaks to seven churches uh, in the very beginning basically talking about, okay, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection happened, the first, you know, kind of few decades of church happened, and even after the first few decades of church happened, there was some misalignment with a lot of the church, and so Jesus, through the book of Revelation, through John, speaks into that. So, again, if you're interested in Revelation, then you're probably a weirdo, and you're going to want to come anyways. If you're not interested in Revelation, you're thinking, who in the world can understand? You especially want to be here to kind of take a first step towards understanding what God was intending in that book. So, All that to say, let's pray together and we'll start our time. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this time that we have together. God, I pray that you would be with my thoughts and my memory. God, I pray that you would speak to all of us through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word. God, that we would all arrive at destinations in life that glorify you, that honor you. God, that our lives would be attached to your glory, our influence for you, Jesus, would go forward. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. So this series is simply about you and I arriving at a destination in life that we want to be. And, and that sounds really simple, and that sounds really obvious, and that sounds really intuitive, but most of us um, end up in life somewhere on accident. Most of us end up in life, um, we make decisions every day, and we talked about this week one, that your decisions um, or your direction, not your intention, determines your destination. Your direction of your life, not your intentions, 
determine your destination. In other words, we could decide as a family, we just had a baby and we would not take a road trip right now. In fact, we probably won't take a road trip for the next decade, but we could decide as a family that we're going to go to Jacksonville because everybody loves Jack's Beach. It's the great mecca of both local beaches and great beaches at the same time. And so we're going to go to Jack's Beach where you can you know, marginally surf from time to time. Although I have never surfed and I'm 33 and I really want to. So if anyone wants to take me on a little like endless summer surfing safari trip, I'm in. Even if you want to travel internationally, you know, hey, let's go big. So um, I, they say we want to decide to go to, to Jacksonville and surf. And we, you know, head down to, the, to I-10. We head down to I-10 and as we're driving. We decide, you know what? We're going to, with all of our intentions to go to Jack's Beach, we are going to head west down I-10. Now, if you are directionally impaired, that means we're headed towards California, not towards Jacksonville. And with our best intention, if we don't head in the direction that we ultimately want our our destination to be, our best intentions are intentions at best if they don't lead us to a particular destination. And what's, what's interesting about that is we know that intuitively, geographically. But oftentimes in life, we miss that over and over and over and over again. And here's why. Because every day, we make decisions. Every day, you and I make decisions. And as we make decisions, our decisions, whether intentional or unintentional, whether good decisions or bad decisions, are leading us in a direction. And very few of us make the connection between the day-to-day decisions and the ultimate destinations of our life. In other words... We all have, whether you've thought about it or not, we all have decisions or, or destinations that we'd like to end up relationally. If you're married, then you already have a destination that you hope that your marriage ends up in. If you're dating, then you have a wish, a hope, and a dream that you hope that your, that your marriage ends up in. Nobody, for instance, on their wedding day stands before the pastor, stands before the altar, stands before the, you know, the, the, the field, because we're all earthy and hippie nowadays, you know. Nobody stands before that and says, you know, man, my destination for my marriage, if I could just, you know, if I could just give my, mission, my, my marriage a mission statement, I hope that we wake up 30 years from now just absolutely hating each other. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pledge my life to you that I want to spend the rest of my life in such extraordinary resentment towards you that I feel like there's an island between us, not just a dog when we sleep, you know. I can't wait to hate my marriage. But over and over, the, the majority of marriages don't last. And those that do, there is a huge percentage of which aren't happy in marriage. You know why? Because we make decisions every day. Whether you've ever put words to it or not, you have financial goals. Perhaps for you, you want to live in a way that, that you are going to be able to retire early. Perhaps for you, you want to live in a way. I remember when I was in high school, um, there was a guy who, who named a financial destination that was really silly but kind of funny. When he went to Wendy's one day and we were talking, he was like, man, I just want to make enough money one day where if I get through half my nuggets, I can throw them away and not feel bad about it. <laughs> it's like... It's a financial destination, absolutely. You know, you want to make enough money. In other words, you want to make enough money to where you have some margin. You have enough margin to where if, you know, you have a little some discretionary spending, you don't have to feel bad to scrutinize every decision because you have margin in life. You have a financial destination. And again, whether you've ever put words to it or not, you have destinations in almost every single area of your life. But few of us name those, and, very, and even fewer of, us, fewer of us make decisions that align us with our ultimate destinations. And here's why that matters so much. 
Because left to just kind of like a decision-making process and a destination process, all that stuff is good and well, but it's a little bit self-helpy, if we're honest. If you are a Christian, the decisions you make, the direction your life is headed, ultimately brings glory to God, puts you in a position to live a life worthy of the gospel, as the, as, as, as the writers of the New Testament would say. And furthermore, they increase your influence for Jesus on planet Earth. Isn't this true? You know people. You know people who are Christians. Who make very, 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 very wise decisions consistently. They make great decisions consistently. And those people are attractive because of their stability. Because of their consistency. They're the person when your world's burning down, you want to talk to. Because if anybody there, if there's anybody that can hear and do and, and give you advice that's been through perhaps what you've been through and made a good decision in light of it, it's that person. We've all know that those people. And come on, don't you want to be one of those people who's consistent, who's smart, who's wise, who has a good marriage, and who arrives at the right? destination now a couple things to get us there when grant talked he he uh talked basically about how beliefs inform our decisions what you believe informs your decision your decisions determine your direction your direction ultimately arrives at a destination we all get that okay if, if, if you weren't ready to just kind of logically progress through something on Sunday morning, you're like, man, I wasn't ready to just be bored and checked out. Okay, so let's put that together. So your beliefs, what you believe about something, informs your decision. So the way, what I believe, let's talk, let's talk you know, money specifics. We're actually going to read out a story about some people who had some beliefs about some money. Um, what you believe about money ultimately informs your decision. So every decision that you make, if you want to know actually what you believe in life, you just look at the, de- at the decisions you make, and your decisions reflect your belief because your belief informs your decisions. In other words, the reason why you continually date a jerk over and over and over and over again is because deep down you believe that what has to happen in a, in a relationship, whether you've ever ended or not, is you need a guy who's a project. Let me just tell you about old project cars. They always need maintenance. So does your fella, or your girl, perhaps. But your belief about relationships, your belief about finances, turns into decisions. And so, if we are going to begin making new decisions, it's not just a declaration to make new decisions to arrive at different destinations. It is our beliefs have to be fundamentally changed, and our beliefs are fundamentally changed by the gospel. As we encounter a God who so deeply loves us that he gave his one and only son to die for us. You see, as Christians, let me just talk about this. As Christians, we're going to read a story about some guys who gave about some people who decided, you know what, I am going to be generous. In fact, there's two stories that are juxtapositioned together um, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. And there's two people who gave, who had very different beliefs about why to give. What we're going to understand is, their beliefs informed their decisions. Their decisions ultimately determined their destination. Now, here's the thing. The problem with belief, and the problem with decisions, is as good as some of our beliefs are, we still fight this same battle, which is just really simply put, it's easier to look at the short term than it is the long term. It's easier for us to look at the short term than the long term. You can have great beliefs about you know, money. You can have great beliefs about relationships. But let me tell you, if you are single and you're looking for somebody and somebody shows you attention, you can date a frog 
who's got money, who's got security, and who shows you attention. You can pick a career that ultimately you know God has not called you to. In fact, for some of us, maybe we're down careers. We're halfway down the path. We're rounding the, the, the curve on the end of our career. Because it was just an opportunity. Not necessarily a calling. And so we walked through that. Not that all opportunities aren't callings as well. But perhaps you knew that wasn't the direction that God had for your life. So, we're going to read this story about two different beliefs, about two different thoughts, and how those, those thoughts ended up. So, if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 32. Now, it's going to give us a little, little background to what's happened. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible at all, the book of Acts is essentially a history book. It's a book where... Um, the guy named Luke who wrote the book of Luke um, kind of dovetails into the end of the book of Luke um, the story of the early church. And as he's writing the story of the early church, he writes the book of Acts, which happens over a number of different decades. But we're going to be early on in the story in chapter 4. Um, what happens is in Luke chapter, I'm sorry, not Luke, Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes down. Pentecost happens. Peter, um, who was one of Jesus' close followers, is filled with the Spirit, stands up and gives a sermon. Lots and lots of people give their life to Jesus. Um, They have an incredibly difficult church problem for us as a church. Um, As we've grown, we've had to really quickly adjust to church growth. We've had to adjust our systems. We've had to adjust our organizational model. We've had to adjust a lot of stuff. And we just went from, you know, about 100 or so to about 500 or so in a couple years. They went from zero. They went from about 12 to like 3,000 overnight. Now, that sounds like it was like, oh, it's a good problem. <laughs> That's because you're not the one with the problem. You know, it's still a problem. So they all of a sudden have 3,000 people that are a part of their church. They don't know what to do. In fact, at the end of Peter's sermon, it's kind of funny because he gets done. He's never given a sermon before. They say, that's great. What do we do? You know, in other words, Peter, sermons have application to them. So what do we, you know, okay, we believe in Jesus. He's like, ah, repent and be baptized. Thankfully, he was right in that, you know. I don't know, just that, that, that sounds like what's right to me. So he tells everybody to repent and be baptized. In the story of the early churches, they started to meet together. They prayed together. They worshiped together. They broke bread. They had communion together. And as they did that, people were added. Numbers were added to them daily. And there sprang up this sense of generosity that no one was without need. Because here was their belief. If we're in Christ... I am as much a part of you as you are a part of me. My problems are your problems. Your problems are my problems. And so if I got plenty, then perhaps I should give you some. Now, this wasn't kind of pause. This wasn't this idea of, okay, this is the great, you know, we should all just live in a commune together, and we should just sing kumbaya, and no one should have anything. No, no, no. It was this genuine love and care that I love you so much. I believe that I am called to love you so much, and God gave so much for me, that my belief is that if I have extra, it's not a command, but I'm going to choose to share Because I care about you. Because I have a belief that Christians love, not just in what they say, but in how they actually live. So, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of his things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So this big sense of generosity sprang up. And with great power, the apostles were giving the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. 
There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, they didn't really have a great system for collections and for offerings, and so what would happen is as people would, would make money, as people would sell their houses, as people would sell land, as things would happen, they would get money from it, and they would say, okay, I have a lot. In fact, I have more than I need, so here, I already had as much as I needed. I sold this. This is extra. Here, you can have this. Now, if you want to sell your house and give it to the church, that's fantastic. We've got a building that we're trying to build right now. We will take that, but that's not necessarily the point as much as they said, we believe that God is honored by our generosity. We believe that we care about each other so much that we are going to have a sense of, of what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine, and if I'm in need, then you're going to help me, and if you're in need, then I'm going to help you. Verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who is called by the apostles, Barnabas. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Barnabas. Barnabas, a little bit later on in the book of Acts, is going to be an incredibly influential person. But this is the first little snippet that we hear about Barnabas. So this guy named Joseph, who everybody called Barnabas, which is an interesting nickname. Usually it's like Joseph, who everybody called Joe. (laughs) Which means son of encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, that's all it says in this about Barnabas. He says, hey, and by the way, there was this guy named Barnabas, Joseph Barnabas, weird connection. But he sold some land. And when he sold land, again, he had the belief that they talked about in the, in the, in the first verses, that they were of one mind and of one heart and of one accord. And if I have something, I'm going to share with you. Just the way that if you have something, you're going to share with me if I have need and if you have need. And so here, I have this land. Let me give it to you, apostles. And you guys just distribute it how you see fit. Now, oftentimes when we read the Bible, There is a disassociation between what we read in one verse and the next verse because there's a new chapter and there's a brand new set of numbers along with those chapters that go verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. But when they read this, it was one continuous letter. So there was a connection between what happened at the end of chapter 4 and what happens at the beginning of chapter 5 because it says, but a man. In other words, so that's one story of generosity. But let me tell you about another story that happened. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what we're going to find out in a second is this. It's not that he decided to keep some of it. It's not that God had this edict and this command that you have to give me everything, all of your money. From time to time, he did that with rich young rulers and people like that. But for this particular situation, it's not that he just decided, you know what, you can't have anything. you got to give it all to me. It's that Ananias and his wife Sapphira decided they had a belief that their appearance of generosity was more important than generosity itself. They had a central belief that the appearance of generosity was more important than generosity itself. So they made a decision that though they sold it for X amount. They're going to sell it for a Y amount. They're going to, we don't know what it was, the percentage was. We don't know if they, if they sold it for 100% and they gave 95%. We don't know if they sold it for 100% and they gave 75%, 50%. Maybe there was 25%. They're like, yeah, man, we got hosed on the deal. Here's 25%. We don't know what happened. But for some way, shape, or form, they said that this is everything that we made off the deal because they had a belief that appearances were more important than the heart of generosity. 
The apostles through the Holy Spirit understood that this was happening. So Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? (laughs) This is interesting. Because very few of us make this spiritual connection to the decisions that we make. I don't know anybody that says, you know, man, I messed up the other day. Let me tell you, Satan just filled my heart and I made that decision. We'd say, that's extreme. But Peter looks at him and says, come on, come on. If you're going to make a decision that didn't honor God, as a Christian, if you make a decision that didn't honor God, that wasn't truthful, that wasn't honest, that wasn't what God would have you to do, and you weren't under the influence of the Holy Spirit and the power of God, then what influence were you under? He continues on and says this, Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not as your, at your disposal? In other words, Ananias, you could have done anything you wanted. You could have kept the whole thing for yourself. There was no command that you had to give this to us. There was no command that you had to, had to, had to give. You see, this is interesting. Because sometimes, especially for us, when we view giving, we view giving as a command that we have to do. This is something that God has called us to do, that we have a heart for one another. And at the end of our, at our, with our heart for one another, um, it results for us in a destination of generosity. With our heart for the kingdom of God, it results in a heart of generosity. That's what we talk about. We, when we give, it's not out of an obligation. We get to give. We get to partner with God. We get to be generous because God has done so much for us. So it looks like says, you could have done anything. You could have done anything with it. It was at your discretion. It was at your disposal. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart and you have not lied to man but to God? In other words, you thought you were lying to me. You thought you were sinning against me. You thought you were fooling me. But let me tell you, there are spiritual implications. And here's what we're going to find out. And this is where we're going with this whole thing this morning. What Ananias and Sapphira thought, what they felt is the same thing that we feel. Sometimes, even with our best beliefs, our best beliefs get traded in for short-term gratification. We as people have a difficult time deferring gratification because immediate gratification feels so good. They felt generous and they thought they were going to have their cake and eat it too. He says, come on, you thought you were lying to us. But you were lying to God the whole time. You thought this was just a here and now type of thing. But this is a long-term thing. This has bigger implications than you thought perhaps it had. And here's, here, here's why this is important. Your sinful decisions, my sinful decisions, our sinful decisions, because we all make them. There is not a person in this room who is perfect in this category. All of our decisions that don't honor God will take us farther than we wanted to go and cost us more than we thought we'd pay. Your and my sinful decisions, our decisions that don't line up with our beliefs and we don't make decisions that honor God and that glorify God with our lives, cost us more than we wanted to pay and take us farther than we wanted to go. Now here's what happens with Ananias. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now, this is an interesting uh, way to, to incite giving in the church. You know, it's like, ah, yeah, I gave 10%, boom. <laughs> it's like, we're going to be all a little bit more honest when it comes to community group. Verse 7. So after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Now, apparently she doesn't know her husband's dead, which you could argue is a little bit insensitive of Peter. But he's talking to her and says, hey, you know, I'm going to give you a chance. And she said, yes, for so much. Now, they don't describe how much, so we can't talk about the price per square foot of land in their area. But verse 9, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When Then the young men came and they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, two things. One is it's good that those consequences aren't as drastic as we face today when God, but God was making a point with the early church, and he's making a point to our church today, that there are consequences to our sinful decisions. There are consequences to our sinful decisions, and when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in Jesus and make decisions that are contrary to our belief, when there is a cognitive dissonance between what we believe and how we act, it is almost always because of some type of short term gratification instant and immediate gratification i asked two different people this week why do you think one works in the church world one works in the therapy world aka my wife and i said why do you think i mean come on you talk to people every day especially christians why do you think that we make decisions that do not align with our beliefs and in different ways they said the same thing One said, because we don't understand, I think we don't really grasp the long-term consequences of our decisions. The other said, because we don't get past the short-term, immediate gratification that we feel. Now, here's what's interesting. Really small decisions. I don't think either one of them thought, okay, this decision about how much of a percentage I give of my land is going to ultimately determine my destination. But that's kind of the trick. Is none of us understand the ramifications and the implications of what happens when we make our day-to-day decisions and how they ultimately land us at a destination. Very few of us connect the dots because we don't know what the dots are 30 years down the road. But for those of us who are older, you can look at dots that happen in your life and see how small decisions along the path led you in a destination. For some of us, in a destination that we wanted to be in. And for some areas of our life, destinations that we did not want to be in. And neither one of them thought probably this was a very consequential decision. But Ananias and Sapphira die. You know the next time we hear about Paul or or Barnabas? It's when this gentleman who you've probably heard of named Paul comes on the scene. In Acts chapter 9, I'm just going to read this real quick. We might not have it up on the screen. Acts chapter 9, verse 26, Paul, who becomes, or Saul, who becomes Paul, who hated Christians, killed Christians, didn't like Christians, ends up becoming a Christian. Saul, who becomes Paul, who, by the way, writes two-thirds of the letters of the New Testament, 
Paul, who we would not have Romans had Paul not written Romans. We would not have Philippians had Paul not written Philippians. We would not have Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, debatably Hebrews, but Hebrews, you know. We wouldn't have any of those letters had Paul not written those. But when Paul first became a Christian... No one believed that he was a Christian. Everybody believed that this was a ploy from Saul to kill more Christians. In fact, the very first Christian that ever was killed, it said, and Paul, or Saul, was watching over, and he was giving approval. So when all of a sudden Saul becomes renamed by Jesus, when he believes in Jesus, has an incredible experience, and he all of a sudden becomes a Christian, becomes Paul. You know what happened? Nobody believed it, just in the same way me or you. It's like if you're a Jew in, 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 in Germany back in World War or two, and all of a sudden, like, yeah, Hitler converted. <laughs> right, right, I bet he did. Yeah, oh, come over for dinner, man. Let's get coffee. Absolutely. No one would believe it because he was so adamantly opposed to it. Did you know what happened? You know who had the relational clout with the apostles? You know who was the one person when everyone else was scared had the moral authority because of the decisions that he had made to voice? And to vouch for Saul, who is now Paul, who would become the greatest church planter in the history of Christianity, who would write two-thirds of what we have in the New Testament. You know who it was? Barnabas. Verse 26. And when he, Paul, had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27. But Barnabas. But Barnabas, who decided in chapter 4, that though I don't know the long-term decisions of my long-term consequences and destinations of my decisions, I'm going to choose long-term, not short-term. I'm going to choose obedience, not rebellion. I'm going to choose what would honor God and not what would build my kingdom. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how, the Lord, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. This is the same Barnabas, by the way, who, when they send him out in verse 13, gets sent with Paul. This is Barnabas who, by the way, throughout Paul's life, was Paul's right-hand man. In fact, at first, it was interesting, as you read the Bible in chapter 13, when Paul's going to all the Jews, it's Barnabas and Paul. You know why? Because Barnabas had more clout with the Jews because nobody still trusted Paul. After about chapter 14, chapter 15, it all of a sudden turns into Paul and Barnabas because they get sent to the Gentiles, and now Paul's a right-hand man to Barnabas. Before Barnabas, was Paul was a right-hand You get what I'm saying. They're back and forth. Let me tell you. We have no clue. We have no clue. We have no clue. The long-term consequences and implications of our decisions to follow God. We have no clue what your relational decisions hold. We have no clue how much your daily decision to prioritize time with God holds. We have no clue how much your decisions... To live a life that honors God in whatever area and arena of life holds for you. You have no clue, and I have no clue, what God wants to do with us. 
For some of us who are Christians, who we make decisions to honor and to glorify God as best we can. Let me tell you where we fall into this a lot. I heard a pastor say this, and this was so just intuitive. If, if you're 35 and under, which 90% of you, 95% of you, you know, if, this is, if, if you're in that category and you're a Christian, you've been following Jesus for a little while, let me, let me tell you what, what I heard a pastor say that was just, it, it was so true. We underestimate what the faithfulness of God will do in 10 years, but overestimate what it will do in a year. In other words, we have a tendency to overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what consistent, faithful obedience to God will do in 10 years. We want to be Hillsong overnight and not obedient with what God has in front of us with the person in our class or with the person that we work with or with the person that we're ministering to through the Hope Program, through Project Tallahassee programs, through the greeter team, through the coffee bar, through the kids ministry. We have no clue. And we overestimate the short term, underestimate the long term. We look at the immediate gratification, immediate gratification, immediate gratification. It didn't work out, didn't work out, didn't work out. No clue how much God wants to do 10 years from now through our consistent obedience to him. So please, 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 this is the point. Please, 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 do not make decisions that satisfy in the short term, but will ultimately leave you wanting more in the long term. Please don't make decisions that will cost you influence for the kingdom of God, that that renders your life not as glorifying to God because you made short-term decisions, nearsighted decisions. When God wants to use you and minister through you and be a light through you for the long term. Now as we're closing, let me give you the ultimate example of this and we'll be done. The ultimate example of this is Jesus. Who saw our sin but didn't count our sin against us. Jesus, who as Philippians 2 would write, knowing and understanding The cross. Who for the joy set before him, the joy is the long-term benefit that people are going to come to know me. People are going to have a right relationship with God. That sinful people like you and I can be forgiven of our sins, of no doing of our own. That we can go to God, our Heavenly Father, who is so extraordinary, holy, and pure, and big, and unlike us, as we're going to read about in Revelation next week, can look at sinful us, and we can have a right standing with God. Who Jesus, who the joy set before him, that he knows that was the ultimate destination of his life, endured the cross. Did not trade the short term for the long term, but endured the cross, went through what he didn't have to, went through what no one thought he should do, went through what honestly he could have changed but knew he was not called to change. He got mocked for it when people said, if you're the king of the Jews, you can't even save yourself. If you're the son of God, you can't even save yourself. And I got to feel like Jesus is like, you freaking people, you don't understand. I could, but I choose not to. Trade the short term for the long term. So here's how we're going to end. We're going to take communion together. And I just want you to see. 
I want you to make decisions that glorify God. I want you to make decisions that arrive in the sense. I hope that you have extraordinary marriages. I hope that, that marriage counseling in our church does not exist because you make decisions every day that align yourselves up for a good marriage. If you're in marriage, that you make decisions every day that your marriage is just fantastic because of the way that you love and that you serve each other, the way that you communicate, the way that you problem solve. I want you to have incredibly, incredibly gifted careers. I want you to make lots and lots of money, and I want you to make lots and lots of money, not so that you can spend it on yourself, so that you can help people, you can share people, you can love people, you can provide for people, because you, almost every single one of you, has an ability to make one of the top percentages in the world, just simply by the fact that you live in America. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. Anyways, I want you to have a fantastic life that God has called you to. For some of us, that is going to be a life where we're just glorifying to God and it goes well. Some of us, that's going to be a life where we're called to the mission field, where we're going to the places, to the unreached people groups. For some of us, we're funding you to go. We're helping you to go. We're sending you to go. We're involved in the communities around our city, in the communities around the world. I want you to have that life that glorifies God and influences your kingdom. And I want you to know, but beyond any of that, that I want that for you. Because that mirrors the heart of a God who did that for us. Who the night before he died, sat with this core group, broke bread, drank from the cup, said, this is my body, which is going to be broken for you. This is my blood, that's going to be shed for you. So I want you to take this. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Who for the joy of the long term set before him. Made a decision that would arrive him at an earthly destination of the cross. But would land him in a spiritual destination of glorification. That he is now seated at the right hand of God. And we can have a right relationship with our heavenly father. Because he who for the joy set before the long term endured the short term of the cross. And I pray, I pray, I pray that we would do the exact same thing. That your life would be more glorifying to God. And my life would be more glorifying to God. As we align our beliefs with our decisions that arrive us at God-glorifying destinations as we daily don't trade the long-term for the short-term. Instead, prioritize what God would have us to do and where God would end us up in the long-term, not the short-term. Let's pray together. We're going to take communion. As we take communion, um, the way we do it is we're going to sing a song. And just kind of as you, you know, it's not by row. It's just kind of as you want to, you know, I want you to get up. As you're ready to partake in this. If you're in here, you're not a Christian. That, 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 that's just fantastic. We're so glad that you're here. We would say if, if you're kind of debating and trying to figure out if you believe in Jesus or not, um, then don't take communion. Because this basically says, hey, I am partaking. I am partnering with. I am coming alongside Jesus. We're going to take it. You're going to come down the middle aisle, tear a little piece off. Dip it in the cup and, and then roll out the side. Don't play biggest piece wins, please. We used to do that. Just, just for one. Anyways, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much that you didn't trade the short term for the long term. God, that you who for the joy set before you, the joy of your glorification and the kingdom of God, 
the glory of your salvation for all people. The joy that you would be seated at the right hand of God, that you would sit and you would rule and you would reign, you would draw men unto yourself, that we could have a right relationship with you. We could have joy, we could have peace, we could have a calling in life, a purpose in life that you have intended us to have. Who for the joy of the long term endured the short term when the short term didn't have the immediate gratification. God, thank you for Paul. Thank you for Barnabas who set this example. Who though he didn't realize what his decision to sell his land and give all of it in Acts chapter 4. Would realize in Acts chapter 7. As he vouched for Paul. Who would become the greatest church planner and author. New Testament and the kingdom of God has seen since you, Jesus. We are just so extraordinarily thankful. God, help us, help us, help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to do the exact same. And as we take this communion, God, please just let it be a reminder to us that we only do this not because we're good people, but through the power in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we come to a realization that Jesus, that's what you did for us. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. And it's your name that we pray. Amen.